Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you so much for tuning in. We've got a great podcast planned for you today, and we're going to talk about uh, engaging with Mormons, with the gospel, and knowing the truth, and being able to have these conversations that would hopefully lead them to Christ. Also, talking about the uh, unintended power of one Supreme Court seat and the battle going on in America right now, the importance of Christians and voting, and why do young people, particularly in the college age or millennial crowd, why do a majority of them favor socialism? Uh, Talk about that, social justice, um, critical theory, so many things if we get to today with our very special guest. Father, thank you for giving us a chance to address some of these very important issues that Christians need to be at least aware of, if not up to speed on so that we can articulate them when we're having conversations with people about things that matter in our lives, in our country, and in this culture, Lord. We take so much for granted, and we are in danger now of losing more of our freedoms, especially our religious freedoms, Lord. So give us wisdom on how to proceed one day at a time. Help us to trust you in all things. We know that you are faithful, you are sovereign, and in the timeline of eternity— This is such a small portion of um, existence, and yet 2020 has been such a bear of a year for many of us, Lord. And I just pray for the church right now, your, your people, your children, that believers in Christ would be able to unify on the truth of the essentials, on the inerrancy of Scripture, on the Word of God, on the deity of Jesus, and also in love. Because if we just try to unite with just being loving, then we get sentimental and we get away from the truth. And Lord God, just give us that foundation that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, we're very blessed to have Dr. Corey Miller with us. He's the president and CEO of Ratio Christi, and he grew up in Utah as a seventh-generation Mormon, and he came to Christ in 1988. Now, he's served on pastoral staffs at four churches. He's taught Uh, nearly 100 college courses in philosophy, theology, rhetoric, and comparative religions, including Indiana University, Purdue, Multnomah University. His work has been published in various journals, and Corey is the author or co-author of several books, including what we're going to talk about in the first segment today, a brand new release, Engaging with Mormons, Understanding Their World, Sharing the Good News. Corey, thank you so much for coming back on Stand Up for the Truth, brother. Hey, thank you for having me here, David. It's great to be back with you. Well, we want to introduce you or reintroduce you, I guess, to our audience because we've probably got uh, half of our audience is new, I'm estimating, since you were on last. And um, that just happens sometimes. Shows go through changes, and this podcast is no different. So we've got a lot of people who don't remember you and and the uh, apologetics and Ratio Christie and all the work that you've done. So could you give us a little bit of background, more than what I shared in the uh, intro, on you and what what you're doing now and what brought you to this place, please? Sure. So I preside over a uh, campus ministry. We're on about 125 campuses doing apologetics evangelism, where we're equipping students and faculty with historical, philosophical, and scientific reasons for following Jesus. And uh, I try to work together with professors, with students. Uh, Those are our our kind of targets, and we partner well with uh, evangelical seminaries across the nation to recruit staff as what I would consider the highest educated campus ministry because of our ambitions to reclaim the intellectual voice of Christ at the universities. So we partner with other campus ministries, partner with churches, and partner with uh, seminaries because we can do things bigger and better together. Mm. And when you're on campus and people you work with are ministering to college-aged students, uh, young people today, um, do you find that what we you know, announced at, at the early part, uh, uh, actually, actually just a couple minutes ago, 
indicated that most young people tend to be uh, liberal, progressive. They, they tend to shy away from um, traditional uh, biblical Christianity. They, they tend to favor things like socialism and others. Um, do you find that, and how are you seeing that pattern in today and, and on the university level? Well, I think there is a couple of things going on that make students sympathetic with that. One, you've just gone through you know, a, a difficult economic time over the last decade. It, obviously, it's gotten a lot better over the last few years. But during that time, you get a lot of um, you know, college-age students that are influenced, first of all, by professors, and professors tend to lean left of center. And I mean left of center, we're talking the left-to-right ratio in the academy is 12 to 1 right now mm-hmm. for those getting ready to retire uh, 65 and older. But for those 40 and under that will be there for 20 to 30 years, the ratio is 23 to 1. In New England, it's 27 to 1. And in some departments, it's 70 to 1. So uh, this is an incredibly different university than we've ever had in the Mm -hmm. history of the country in terms of its political orthodoxy being, you know, one direction like that. And they tend to lean left and tend to sympathize with socialism. You've got a large number of professors who uh, outrightly would, you know, affirm that. And so uh, with students going through those difficult times and uh, so much is weighed on the emotions right now, uh, people are are emoting more than they are thinking, and they've not lived through the history that saw, uh, you know, the Cold War. They're not aware of what communism was. They're aware of fascism because we've talked about that for so long. But they don't know the socialistic um, implications of communism, and they don't know even soft socialism, really. And so with a, a, a plethora of different things happening, you're getting a, a body of professors that are training the teachers, that are training all of our students from K through college hmm. uh, in this new trajectory. And this is part of why you're seeing our, our country uh, secularize so rapidly, and with that comes implications. Ideas have consequences. Mm-hmm. Amen. That's right. And there, we're seeing a lot of these consequences played out in our current culture. Um, a lot of it is the rewriting of history or the ignored history going through the government-run school system in America. They've taken out a lot of history that would allow students to understand the truth of socialism and communism, but that um, that is a whole nother conversation, uh, Corey. Let's get get back to the gospel because I know that's at the heart of what you do and apologetics. Um, your brand new book is called "Engaging with Mormons: Understanding Their World and Sharing the Good News." Now, I read part of the book description. It says, "Written at a level even I can understand." No, it says, "Written at a level that everyone can understand." This book emphasizes the importance of forming loving honest, open relationships as part of the way we engage with our Mormon friends and neighbors and with those who may come knocking at our doors. And that would, of course, include others, other religions as well. But how is this book different from your previous book on Mormonism? Right. So the previous book was written um, from the standpoint of scholars leaving Mormonism. We wanted to do that one because we felt like there was a missing piece there. Certain evangelical scholars were soft-serving Mormonism or soft-coding what Mormonism was. And so we wanted to enter into a new uh, angle uh, of conversation on this to set the record straight. So all of the authors were former Mormon, current uh, broadly evangelical, and possess an academic doctorate. And so we each, from our various vantage points, from biblical studies, philosophy, physics, education, and so forth, uh, gave our own reasons for why we left Mormonism, and then reasons that were concerned about Mormonism, and then shared our testimonies. And so it's, it's written, uh, in a sense, for Mormons to read, or for Christians, but for Mormons to kind of appreciate the uh, level of uh, intelligent communication with the scholarly realm considered. Uh, This one, by contrast, is written for a readability level of, you know, ninth, tenth graders. So it's very easy to read, short. Uh, It focuses on the sociology and 
psychology, so the culture of Mormonism, not just the theology and doctrine that you might find in a lot of typical books on Mormonism. And I think that's important because we've often, you know, in the evangelical world, seen Mormonism as a cult, a non-Christian cult, not like a Jim Jones-type cult, but Mm -hmm. an aberrant theological cult. But we have failed to look at it as a culture, and it really is both and. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm thinking of the culture of Mormon families, of Mormons. I'm thinking think of culture of Hispanics. I mean, I, I love the culture of some of these people that want to live a more, I guess, moral life, and they have a guideline. They have their, their book, the Book of Mormon and, and others. Um, how can you get through this point of not talking about theology, though, with the importance of the deity of Christ so pivotal to relating to someone on that level when you're talking to a Mormon, you know, when you're talking to a, a Christian or a Mormon, you know, we're having this conversation about the, the deity. I, I understand what you're saying. It's kind of hard to get away from what you did in your first book. Um, can you give us a couple ideas on, on approaches? Yeah, I mean, I think on the one hand, we have to really focus on the essentials. There are a lot of people that want to look around the periphery of Mormonism and talk about, you know, strange things to them, uh, you know, maybe occultic signs on the temple or on the undergarments or, um, you know, do they own shares in Coca-Cola? And yet what is this words of wisdom thing? They can't drink coffee or caffeine. Those things are, are really on the, on the outside compared to what's uh, the essential issues. And that is who is God? How does man get to heaven? Both of which find their segue in the person and work of Christ. So I think we need to take an essentialist approach in that we focus on the essential doctrines. But if you cannot get around some of the issues on essentials of dialogue, you're not really going to get anywhere. At least you won't score any traction on doctrines. And so, um, you know, you need to consider a couple of things. Mormons are individuals. They have come to Mormon faith or have grown up in Mormon faith uh, with different sets of circumstances. You get five different Mormons, you may have six different opinions. And so we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. So I say we need to listen more. We need to figure out why that particular Mormon I'm talking to uh, is a Mormon and start from there and get to the essential doctrines eventually. The other thing is we need to we need to be loving the Mormon, speaking in truth in love, but they need to sense that we do care for them and that we're not just being theologically combative. So mm. I don't want the, the bash or the dash approach. The bash is, bash is where we take the biggest Bible we can, hit them over the head, and clobber <laughs> them with all of our theological knowledge. Uh, the dash approach is where we see the missionaries coming up to our door, and we either you know quickly don the blinds and shut the door and lock it, or we open it and say, I've got my religion, no thank you, goodbye. Uh, by the way, you're going to hell if you don't repent. <laughs> you know? The bash and the dash approach are not good. We need to welcome these people into dialogue and share with them the gospel that we have hopefully been prepared and preparing for sharing, because these are people for whom Christ died. And then the third thing is that we need to recognize that Mormons are um, feeling people in their religious apparatus. They have what is called the testimony. And while that's not an essential doctrine, it is an essential of dialogue. You're never going to make it far if you can't figure out how to deal with the Mormon testimony. And so that's something that uh, I get into in my new book even more uh, when we're talking about Mormon psychology and sociology. And uh, the new book, Engaging with Mormons, that is going to be available this month. It's, It's pretty quick, right? Yeah, it's uh, technically November 3rd. It's already on okay. pre-release, and my copies will arrive next week. Okay, so pre-release, you mean people can actually order it and they receive it, it before mm-hmm. November 3rd, or that's when they start shipping? That's when they would start shipping, but they can order it now. Okay, so they can pre-order, and is there, other than, um, there, is there an Amazon page or your website? What's the best link to get to the book? Sure, you can just go to Amazon engaging with Mormons. It's part of a, uh, a for those interested in, in worldview and apologetics and evangelism, even, you know, uh, readable books on various religions, including atheism. 
it's part of a, a series. And so exchange the word Mormon and you've got Muslim, atheist, Hindu, Buddhist, and so forth. But just go to Amazon, Engaging with Mormons. Okay. I see it. I'm on the page right now. Um, yeah, good. So we know people can get it. And I, I'd like to have you on again a little later, get get into the book more in depth, because wanted to tackle other topics today as well. But um Corey, I didn't have a chance to go through it. It's, it I know, th- thank you for uh, sending it to me. I have just some computer issues, <laughs> opening up big uh, PDFs or documents or whatever. But it's important. I just want to just look at the description that it's it's designed to help Christians understand more about the beliefs, mindset, and motivations of those who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um you're right when you said earlier we kind of uh, get maybe intimidated, I'm not sure if that's the right word, uh, about addressing the issue of Mormonism, and that probably is because we don't feel confident in our ability to articulate not only the gospel but maybe the differences and what they might, how they re- might respond. What are your thoughts on that? Right. I think our culture in general, we, we don't like conflict— Um, A lot of people are off social media or they refuse to comment because of it. We don't want to engage in conflict, and there's a whole lot of it today. So we want to stay away from it. And so we tend to incline ourselves to the dash approach on this issue. And sometimes Mm -hmm. maybe uh, either we we lack the ability to articulate our faith and defend it, uh, or we just don't even know what it is. I mean, this is part and parcel with, you know, what's going on in the churches today and, you know, filling us full of heart knowledge and mm-hmm. maybe hand knowledge, but no head knowledge. We don't know why we believe what we believe. And so uh, for the churches, they need to be preparing their people to do evangelism. And I think, you know, just for the, for the, the, the genuine Christian, this should be a no-brainer. You mm-hmm. love God, love man. You see what Christ did for you. He's done it for others. We want to go share the good news, and that's what this book is about with a particular segment of people. Mormons are, are good citizens. Mm-hmm. They are good neighbors. Uh, with conservative evangelicals, you can you know vote together with them. A lot of political stuff in common because they believe in the sanctity of human life, and so much of our ethics in Western civilization revolves around that. But theologically, they do not have the same God, the same Christ, or the same salvation. And you can be right on every other doctrine, but if you're wrong on the essentials, you're wrong enough to lose your soul. And if we love these people like God loves them, we should get out of our comfort zone and be willing to have a dialogue. Hmm. I think one of the problems is—and we've got two minutes before we need to take our first break, Corey— when they sometimes say, when we share the basics of the gospel, I think a lot of people get tripped up when a Mormon would respond by saying, oh yeah, we believe in that too. So now you've got to, almost, it's necessary to define terms because they agree with you, maybe on some of the basics or essentials, or maybe they uh, their interpretation of something. I don't think they're, or maybe I'm wrong, maybe they're being purposely deceptive by saying, yeah, we agree with you to draw Christians in. What, what do you think? In some cases, there can be deception. In other cases, there can be deceiving. Uh, sometimes you can see both ends. But, yeah, the terminology differences is something that is uh, uh, a barrier that Christians need to ask good questions. Mm-hmm. Socratic evangelism, you know, what do you mean by this? Because they use the same term, G-O-D, or J-E-S-U-S, and many others. But I use what I call the mom illustration. Hey, you have a mom, don't you? Yeah. Can you spell that? Yeah, M-O-M. Can you spell it backwards? Yes, M-O-M. Oh, my gosh, maybe we have the same mom. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> That's it's, good. <laughs> it's, you've got to say, well, tell me about your mom. What does she look like? How tall is she? Um, and once you start describing features, you're like, oh, this is not the same mom. Mm. Once you start describing characteristics of the Christian and the Mormon God, they have being in common, but almost every characteristic is different. Mm-hmm. All-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present, eternal. None of those describe the Mormon God. And the Mormon Jesus, because the anthropology and the theology are, are messed up, they believe that man and God are of the same species, just along a different continuum. That is so good. Describe what you mean by God. That is so good. We're with Dr. Corey Miller today, 
president of and CEO of Ratio Christie. A whole lot more when we come back on Stand Up For The Truth. Don't go anywhere. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. We're with Dr. Corey Miller today. The book, Engaging with Mormons, it comes out uh, a little over a month. You can pre-order it. The link to the book is in the podcast notes, StandUpForTheTruth.com, or you can just go to Amazon and search Engaging with Mormons, Understanding Their World. Um, Corey, any other, before we move on to the next topic and uh, you know, talk about some cultural things, some things we're dealing with as a church in America, any other uh, thoughts you want to leave us with uh, for, as far as Christians and engaging not only with Mormons, but any who have a different gospel, a different version of who Jesus is? David, it begins with, do I love God? If I love God, I want to, I want to know the heart of God. I want to follow God. I want to be obedient to God. And the Great Commission is uh, one of our great commands, the way that we love God uh, in, in this life, is we, we go out and, and not only show our love, but one of the more salient ways we do so that's going to have eternal implications is sharing the gospel of Jesus. If I love people, I can't but tell the truth. Hmm. Big amen to that. We, and we speak the truth in love, but we cannot... Avoid telling the truth if we have a love for others, because we know what Jesus did for us. We know how we are saved. We want other people to know Christ. Um, uh, Corey, there's so much going on in in the country and in the church. Let's start with the, the early this year, COVID hit, and um, where you're at, I'm sure you know different governors have handled it different ways, and and even different churches and pastors. We react to this differently based on the information we have. Sometimes it comes down to a faith versus fear issue, and I would just like to get your overall thoughts. And you have a perspective being uh, formerly on staff at different churches, and um, just share your thoughts on, on and maybe some encouragement for us that are really disappointed in how things unfolded with the church reacting to COVID and what we're still dealing with, uh, shutdowns, division, and what have you. Right. I mean, the whole COVID situation has been a novelty for America and a, a test for us how we're going to make it through this. Uh, the politicization of medicine has really um, had a, a, a bad impact on its field, but on the confidence that mm. people have in it. And um, there's just a lot of tension in America. And with the lockdown approach, a lot of people have really gone dormant, and that's created a lot of anxiety as well. Uh, not being able to connect with people, not being in community. We are social uh, creatures by nature, and that's why God created, you know, Adam and Eve together. That's why, you know, he, he sees some of the beauty in the church uh, as a, uh, you know, diversity in unity and community in the Trinity. And even the Trinity, you have that, that kind of common unity, that triunity. So there's been a, a severe loss uh, for people. Well, suicide rates have, uh, you know, gone off the charts. And Christians have had to wrestle with, you know, certain beliefs about our view of God and government and uh, where civil disobedience lies um, and in what in what sense we can actually meet in groups versus obeying the government. And we know that, you know, as, as Peter said, Peter gave us a text that said, obey the government, and yet Peter's the one who they told to recant, and he says, no, yeah. uh, I'd rather serve God than man. So if it comes to something where they forbid us to do that which God requires or requires us to do that which God forbids, then we you know, we have grounds for civil disobedience. And so it's been a, a healthy debate for Christians, but it has not been good to be divorced from our community and from good, solid teaching. Yes, and that uh, they definitely said we must obey God rather than man. That was a specific context where they were told not to speak in Jesus' name or not to preach in the name of Jesus. Some, uh, Corey, would say that, well, we're dealing with a health issue, not a 
doctrinal or not a spiritual issue, so we have to obey whatever the governor or government says. I want to get your thoughts on that, because my understanding of that is if you follow that to its logical conclusion, then the, the government can say, put on uh, flippers and, and, and uh, um, uh, goggles, and, and that'll help uh, prevent the virus. Then we'll walk around with flippers and goggles, and, and what, then what do we do? You know, so you will have to say, do whatever they say, but that's not the proper approach either. Right. And it's, I don't want to, uh, you know, I want to be very careful of not articulating a black or white answer on this Mm -hmm. because uh, there are black and white cases. This one uh, leaves it open for debate. And I've seen, you know, both sides debated. Uh, Again, if any authority, civil, ecclesial, familial, uh, or whatever, chooses to forbid us to do that which God requires or requires us to do that which God forbids, then we have grounds to disobey that yeah, that family or church or governmental authority. And that's a question of whether that's, that's being done here. Um, it certainly is setting precedent to, mm-hmm. say, put on flippers. <laughs> um, and would that be something that God forbids? No, I could put on flippers. <laughs> Um, but it certainly is changing our culture, and it's challenging the Christian uh, ethos and response. Yes, it is. Um, nonetheless, there are ways for believers, even now, still, to be able to meet, and uh, fortunate for technology to do that. It's just certainly not optimal or ideal uh, that, that online does not replace uh, the in-presence believers meeting. But this, too, has been a politicization exploiting a crisis situation and taking advantage, Mm -hmm. frankly, of the Church. Yes, and in some cases strong-arming the Church, like California and and some other places in the country. Um, Yeah, it's what's sad is, and I, there's really, and it's not a, it's a, not a win-win by any stretch. It kind of, it's a lose-lose, because from the beginning, the uh, experts, so-called, uh, con- contradicted themselves on more than one issue, whether that be uh, how to catch, how COVID can be spread, uh, the effectiveness of masks. There's been conflicting information, and you can look at both sides and go, yeah, those are some good points. Look at the other side. Yeah, those are some good points. So there's not one absolute, and that's what's frustrating. So Christians are left to say, all right, we've got to try to do our best. Ask, pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom. I know I threw that at you, Corey. We weren't going to get into this issue, but I just want to get your your thoughts. You've been a part of different churches, and you see what's happening in the country. But um, the one thing I wanted to talk about also with you is this push for social justice and what's come out of this misunderstanding of justice. God is a God of justice. Scripture says God is just. Uh, righteousness and truth, uh, the foundation of his throne. He is a just God. And now we have what we're calling social justice being promoted in Christianity, in Christian churches. That's the danger of it. And I w- just would love to hear what what you're you know seeing maybe in your neck of the woods there or what y- your concerns are when we're starting to go a little bit off of the foundation of truth and God's justice. Right. I think this social justice is uh, one of the great travesties of our time. If you are a a pastor or a Christian minister, sometimes you think of it as a positive. It's a a virtue. It means, you know, Micah 6-8, do justice, love mercy, Mm -hmm. uh, help the poor, the downtrodden, the widow. If that's all we mean by it, great. But, you know, David, We've done that for millennia, mm-hmm. and we didn't need the term social justice. That alone tells you there's something else going on here. And when the larger academy that is the fountain of ideas of culture uh, is using that term, they don't mean help the widow, the downtrodden, or things like that. Uh, what they mean is something that comes out of cultural Marxism or neo-Marxism or identity politics or critical theory is the academic term for it. Um, 
all of those things are like throwing socks on a wall. And if something sticks, if you understand that, if you can grasp that, you're probably in the right area. It's a little complicated, but to, um, to make it simple, the, that the view of social justice is this. Social justice is the ethic. Uh, but the, what they're trying to be ethical about is important. The view is that people are uh, divided into group identities. That's your primary identity. It's not an individual. And from the secular viewpoint, it is not made in the image of God, certainly. Um, it, it was Marxism, and that's atheism, but it has since morphed and has moved into the church and into campus ministries and into seminaries and so forth. So it no longer needs the secular uh, or the, the atheistic or naturalistic host to survive and thrive. It, that virus has morphed and gone into Christendom. And so uh, the view is that we're divided by our identities into groups, identity politics, that's where the term comes from. And these groups are either haves or have-nots, um, victims or victimizers, oppressors or oppressed. Mm -hmm. And it, it cuts across the categories of not just class, like classical Marxism, if you've got you know 51% of the money versus 49%, you stole that. Uh, inequality means injustice, and that's important. Uh, disparity means injustice. Well, take that zero-sum game in Marxism from class and apply it to race, sex, class, gender, religion, nationality, ableism, and so forth. Hmm. And you're either on one side as an oppressor or the other side as the oppressed. Wow. And so what's the ultimate goal then? It's to liberate the oppressed mm -hmm. from the oppressor. And that, in group identity or group politics, is called social justice. Hmm. Again, inequality just means injustice. So if there's ever any inequality, that has to be rectified, even by coercion if necessary. So social justice might be, in the Trojan horse, you might have reproductive justice, economic justice, uh, feminist justice, climate justice, uh, LGBT justice, uh, racial justice, which is not the same thing as racial reconciliation or mm. women's rights or treating LGBT people with respect and, and dignity uh, that they're due as human beings or anything like that. Uh, it all falls under a foreign invasive worldview that has come in and really uh, latched onto the sentiments, the emotionalism, mm -hmm. and especially within Christianity where, you know, we're given to, uh, being culpable for people charging us with sin, because we believe in original sin. Uh, have you sinned? Yes. Are you guilty? Yes. Have you oppressed anyone before? Yes. Okay, so you're an oppressor, you're guilty, you're sinful. Yes, yes, yes. What do I do? Well, love, uh, you know, hate or celebrate. What would Jesus do? <laughs> or are you racist or anti-racist? Well, I'm certainly not a racist, so I'm anti-racist. Well, what does that mean? It means you're anti-capitalist. It mm. means you are pro-LGBT, pro-feminist, a whole litany of other things as well. So that term social justice is a Trojan horse, and I think we ought yes. to stop using it because it's confusing at best. Anytime you put, like you said, any a word in front of justice, I don't know that it, it, any of those are actual true justice or biblical justice. Or yeah, in, many in, of them are unjust. Exactly. <laughs> They're unjust. Someone is treated unfairly. If it's all about the oppressed and the oppressor, you use the word climate justice, and I, I'm not sure if it was that word. Um, you know, the, this, the one reason this is really imploding in our culture is because of Black Lives Matter and because of that movement right now. It's a global network based on Marxism. They had their goals clearly put out on their website. They've scrubbed some of their um, about or goals, which one was to— Recently, yeah, they were against the nuclear family and things like that. But it, critical theory is developed out of Marxism. Critical race theory, of course, goes back to the same. But they used a word on their website. They were for well, not only for transgenders, but environmental justice. And I'm going, what the heck is environmental justice or climate justice? And why would a Christian care? about in the environment justice for the environment there, how do you 
How do you process that, Corey, when they come up with these things that are so far from the gospel, the essentials of the of the biblical Christian faith, but because of we're emotionalism, as you mentioned, we, we fall for these things. Well, yeah, yeah, I love the planet, worship the planet, whatever. But that just blew my mind, and people are going on and, and just, you know, marching with these guys. I'm going, do you really know what they stand for? Yeah, and as you pointed out, what's taken the lion's share of critical theory social justice is the racial justice right now because they've uh, exploited the death of George Floyd, which almost everyone unanimously thought was an injustice. Mm-hmm. Um, and and instead, they've just exploited that, moved on from there. And um, this foreign invasive ideology has utilized it to encroach their Marxist viewpoint. Last night, I listened to the lecture at Purdue of Patrice Colors, she's the founder of Black Lives Matter. Yep. You're right, they recently scrubbed that website. Three weeks ago, we had the, the keynote speaker was Ibram X. Kendi. Um, so it's been a, on a racial justice at Purdue this last month. And in, in his lecture, he said everything has a racial component to it. Hmm. And someone says, well, how do, I, how do I get on board with this racial justice. How, what can I do? I feel like I just can't do anything. And he says, well, what are you passionate about? If you're passionate about uh, climate change, uh, that's part of racial justice. Well, how so? Well, climate change impacts a disproportionate, there's disparity, inequality, wow. um, people who are people of color in the Southern Hemisphere. And so uh, if there's a disparity in inequality, it's an injustice. So uh, if you are, um, you know, pushing for, for climate change, then you are for racial justice. And if you are not for it, you continue to be anti-racist. Or, or sorry, you continue to be racist. Wow. So this critical race theory um, is uniquely American, and it'll spread from here, because what happens in America doesn't stay in America. But it followed on critical legal studies and developed out of that, uh, but it still has much of, though not exclusively, of the same neo-Marxist roots. And the difference in neo-Marxism to classical was that uh, the idea needed to focus on infiltrating culture in religion and education in the non-coercive elements of society, not the coercive ones like revolution and government and military and law enforcement. Instead, you go after the non-coercive elements, education and religion. We've seen that happening. It's certainly in the universities, certainly yep. in the uh, K through 12s now, and it's even in every strata of the Christian church in America. And so, uh, as Bible-believing Christians, we recognize this is a different worldview, mm-hmm. and it co-ops some of the Christian language, but it's very subversive to the Christian worldview. And what we had a century ago called the social gospel. Now we have its equivalent, social justice, and yep. it's worse. Social gospel, now social justice. What's next? We've got a lot more. We're going to wrap up some ideas and some thoughts on critical race theory when we come back and then talk about the judicial branch and the Supreme Court seat, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We're talking with Dr. Corey Miller, and we've got more to come on Stand Up for the Truth. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. We're talking with Dr. Corey Miller, and he works with Ratio Christi. It's um, an organization that he's been a part of since 2015. He's the president and CEO, and he's on campus often, and he's at Purdue University, and you know firsthand, Corey, uh, what's happened in the university system in America, how it's been compromised probably for a good 100 years with some of these anti-American um, ideas, concepts, doctrines. But critical race theory uh, presupposes that everything about American society is thoroughly racist, and minority groups will never be equal until America is reformed, uh, reimagined, they use that word a lot, uh, changed, yeah. transformed, some say destroyed and rebuilt from scratch. This is the idea right. that's being put out there. But now, it's not just in the universities. 
we're seeing, I'm seeing articles and my friends that work in the public school system and on uh, education, they're seeing this come in to schools that they're being, they're teaching because of the movement Black Lives Matter has gained so much ground and popularity. This is now welcomed in our education system as a whole. I want to get your concerns and we want to, you know, obviously wrap up this topic. It's a big one, though. Education is so huge because children, once they are, they learn something, it's very hard to unlearn it maybe later in life. But uh, what are your thoughts on what we can do and what's happening in the education system? Well, this is something the church, in my view, this is a big failure, a big black eye in our, um, in our mission. Yes. Uh, the university is the fulcrum. It's, it's the gatekeeper of thought and culture, and ideas have consequences. And we've taken our—not only did we retreat from the universities a century or so ago, um, but we, we tried to do a tactical retreat. We established Christian schools and so forth, but we entered into a holy huddle. We didn't think about uh, long-term objectives of being influential in media, education, mm-hmm. government, and things like that. Uh, Hitler said, give me the textbooks and I will control Germany, and he did. Lincoln said the philosophy of the classroom in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. He was right. Stalin says that ideas are more powerful than weapons. We don't allow our enemies to have weapons. Why should we let them have ideas? And it's the Stalinism that we're experiencing right now. Hmm. Uh, If you don't agree, then you're, you know, with this viewpoint, then you are canceled, Hmm. right? Or destroyed because you are filled full of hate and hate words now. Uh, the vast majority of students in a recent Yale study, the vast majority of college students, believe that uh, physical violence is justified to quell hate speech. Mm. And then hate speech is defined very broadly. We are living in a, in a different world right now, in a different time, and it's because we have taken our eye off the ball at the highest level of education, the universities. Secularists have found a brilliant way to get Christian parents to pay for the apostasy of oh, their own children. My goodness, yes. It is the greatest omission of the Great Commission. Um, we have got to start focusing again on reclaiming the intellectual voice of Christ in the universities. They pump out our K-12 through educators, our journalists, our politicians, doctors, lawyers, media, and so forth. Uh, we, we have, we're paying an exorbitant price for what we've done there. Now we're on the outside trying to get back in and having to go to court over it. You said the greatest omission of the Great Commission. I love that. And, man, I you know, you may be more optimistic than me. I think the system is gone. Yeah, not to say that individuals can't be saved. Individuals can't be redeemed because they can through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the system as a whole, K-12 through and the university system, academia is irreparable, irredeemable, and I give Christians who are in these systems a lot of credit because their hands are tied, often their speech is silenced, and uh, many of my friends, people I've known, have quit or retired or whatever. Um, Corey, that's an uphill battle, but you're right. The church gave it up. We surrendered education uh, so many years ago, and it's just so sad that kids are growing up. We shouldn't be surprised at what they're believing today based on what they have learned for decades. Right. I mean, you get one view from your parents, but then you go off to university, and it's no wonder 70% uh, you know, apostatized, because you're talking with all the smart people, quote-unquote, with PhDs, and how can the average pastor, much less the youth pastor, the parents, compete with that? Mm-hmm. So we're not adequately preparing them, and then yet we send them off into this uh, sacrificial, as a sacrificial offering to these secular baptismal fonts. And I'm not saying that we should retreat. I don't believe that. I'm not a retreatist. A lot of there is a movement in our Christian culture that are trying to isolate ourselves. No, these were our institutions, and you may not take an issue, an interest in politics. One Greek philosopher said, "But politics will take an issue for with you." Yes. So there's nowhere you can retreat to. Uh, mm-hmm. They are coming for you, and it's not a matter of if, but when. You need to unite. We need to get together. Strength in numbers. We don't want to confuse the mission of the gospel uh, with things that we're doing in culture. But, um, you know, some things we need to stand up and fight for. This is not like prayer in schools or something like that. 
We're talking about free speech right now. Yes. We're talking about cognitive liberty. So, you know, Rocio Christie, we're 21 for 21 in legal proceedings and have a Supreme Court case coming up now because we've uh, appealed to Caesar, as Paul has done mm-hmm. numerous times. And I thank you for bringing that up. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court next, but there's a page on your website, ratiochristi.org. It says, if Christians want to engage people with the message of the gospel, we need to understand the ideas and worldviews our culture is embracing and show where they are inadequate so that we can point people to the truth in Jesus. So you have a free resource. It's called Engaging Critical Theory and the Social Justice Movement. We'll put that link in today's podcast notes, but it's at ratiochristi.org, and it is free. Um, yes, and that was the first piece of its length in writing. You can download it digitally or print it out. It's the great. first piece of its length in America from an evangelical uh, viewpoint on critical theory and wow. justice. Thank you for letting me know about that. Um, the Founding Fathers never meant for the Supreme Court to be like it is today, Corey. Something is wrong with the judiciary in America. I wrote a chapter on judicial tyranny in one of my books. A lot of people have written on um, judicial supremacy. Uh, this idea is not uh, the three equal branches of government. It's just the, the legislative branch w- used to be the only one that made law. Um, my article this week, I want to get uh, just a couple thoughts out to you, and then you can respond. The unintended power of one Supreme Court seat, and it shouldn't be like this, Corey. The stakes couldn't be higher. As you know, people understand the, the importance of electing or nominating someone to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who died last week. But this is now a new part of this crisis and this culture war, and we're seeing it played out. But it, it goes back— years, some of their decisions through the years that, that we just kind of rolled over and said, okay, the Supreme Court decided. So nine men, in most cases five, a majority, decided a certain case, and that was for the whole country. It, it, it was never meant to be like this. Corey, your thoughts? Right. The judicial branch was meant to interpret the laws, not to make the laws. That's why conservatives are always trying to get not per se a conservative justice, but a constitutionalist. Yes. Someone who won't take us down their particular proclivity, but will try to be objective in interpreting the law as it is. Uh, Some want judicial activists. They want to make the court a second legislative branch. Or they want to just simply control the court by stacking the court with, you know, untold numerous additional justices um, so that whoever is in legislative power uh, controls the judiciary for that session. And it's uh, it's going to make for it it will lead to the destruction of our governmental system. Mm hmm. Um, one thing I would just want to clarify something that you uh, put a, a post on your Facebook page. It says at the top, I agree with Obama. It's like, what? Corey, no. I'm going to have to cancel you from standing for the truth. And then I read, read further. Uh, four years ago, Barack Obama shared, it's the Senate's job to fairly consider Supreme Court nominees. Do your job. And then he said also, presidents do not stop working in the final year of their term, neither should a senator. And so I, in that case, would also agree with Barack Obama. But today, um, they are really trying to say, no way, you've got to obey Ruth Bader Ginsburg's last wishes, and who knows what she actually said. I'm sure she was with her family. Her last words were something probably to do with her family, not anything to do with the Supreme Court and what she wants to happen, I would guess. And so thanks for putting that out there. It gave me a laugh. And also at the same time, just showing the hypocrisy of just some of the left coming against the president, just wanting to do his duty to nominate a replacement on the Supreme Court. Because if this election, by the way, comes down to a four, I'm I'm sorry, comes down to a court case, because it probably won't be decided on election night. I hope it is, but it might not be. You've got to have that extra Supreme Court seat filled. Corey, we only got three minutes, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, with the Democrats threatening this next nuclear option, this is the new nuclear arms race is the court. (laughs) Um, With this next nuclear option being threatened, that they will stack the courts, put 50 Supreme Court justices in there. Um, 
this next election is is critical. If if we get a conservative, a constitutionalist in there right now, better yet, uh, it can be five. You know, it can be six three court, and this election could be stolen. There's so much corruption mm-hmm. happening right yep. now, and if it's con- un- if it's a contested election. Uh, Hillary Clinton and of others have already said, do not concede at any point. If we, if this election continues to go uncontested until January, there's a law that would make Nancy Pelosi the president. Wow. Um, this is this is just craziness. And so um, to have a fair uh, judgment, I think it's important that uh, the seat gets filled, as Obama said that it should. And it was Harry Reid that opened it up to be able, able to have, you know, 51, a, a simple majority rather than a supermajority. I hope that if the Republicans maintain power in the Senate and the presidency uh, in the next round, they will uh, create an amendment with the Democrats to go back to uh, the requirement for a supermajority because the court should be determined in a bipartisan way. It keeps us more stable as an organi- as a country, I think. I hope so, too. I I definitely think. I hope so, too. Um, Well, closing thoughts. Uh, We've got a big election coming up, and I I like what you said. I don't remember how you paraphrased it, but that that Greek philosopher that said um, it doesn't matter whether you care about politics or or want to get involved. Politics will find you because politics and what is legislated affects us because someone's morality will be legislated in Washington. And that's what's happening, and that's what some of these court cases— Clearly, right. and clearly, see whatever happens with the Supreme Court right now, because we've got an, uh, we're going to the Supreme Court next year in 2021. Wow. Before Ginsburg happened, uh, if it becomes six three, we will most likely win and win big for the whole country on free speech, on free association and speech zones issues on campuses that are dogging us everywhere. Uh, but if they stack the courts and it goes the other way, we'll likely lose big mm. and set bad precedent for everyone everywhere so whatever happens november 3rd might likely determine how we operate as a campus ministry at least wow. it has implications for it so. it sure does and we've seen discrimination against christian groups conservative groups republican groups it's on, all the time on college campuses we've campus. seen the stories yeah. ben shapiro and others you know uh, charlie kirk going to college campuses and we're seeing just an amazing uh, environment that didn't used to be that way at least 50 years ago that's right so uh charlie kirk's group is with us in the amicus brief uh with the supreme court case oh good 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 i'm just what a blessing man what an amazing gift he is to this younger generation charlie kirk but uh we've got to wrap it up here thank you so much uh cory miller president rosho christie and the book engaging with mormons you can pre-order that on Amazon. We'll put the link in the podcast notes. Appreciate your time. God bless you, Corey. God bless you. Thanks a lot, David. Appreciate right. the time. Thank you. All right. We've got a couple new guests next week and a couple pastors that I met down at this conference in Texas. Uh, we'll uh, in- introduce you to them and share who's going to be on the podcast next week as soon as we come back on Stand Up for the Truth. Stand Up for the Truth, a ministry of Lakeshore Communications Incorporated. Keep the discussion going on social media. Stand Up WI on Facebook and Twitter. Now we wrap up today's Stand Up for the Truth. Okay, um, Stefan Broden will be here on Monday. I met him at the uh, Pastors Conference in Texas. Paul Blair, unbelievable man of God. He used to play for the Chicago Bears. I was a pastor in Oklahoma. He was one of the organizers of America at the Crossroads uh, down in Texas that I uh, went to about three, four weeks ago. Talk about political correctness, talk about the importance of Christians engaging in the voting process in elections and the biblical worldview. So much to talk about. We'll hear from Jan Markell next Wednesday, um, Thursday and Friday. I don't have it in front of me, but we have uh, just some new guests coming on. I'm just so excited. All the people we get to have on, it's a blessing. It's a privilege. And uh, I just love giving these people a platform and introducing them to you. But thanks for listening. God bless you and keep speaking the truth about things that matter.